0: Hey, everyone, welcome to Women's Work, Rising, Leading, and Thriving, produced by the Institute for Women, Wellness, and Work at Ursuline College. I'm Gina Messina, and this is a podcast that empowers women to recognize ourselves as the leaders we've been waiting for. If you're a music fan like me, you'll certainly be inspired by today's guest, entertainment and media industry veteran, Marilyn Batchelor. Now, there's so much to say here. This will be the longest intro I've ever done because really, I just don't know what to leave out. So here goes. I have to tell you that it is Marilyn's brilliance and expertise that are behind the marketing plans responsible for the successful launch of the artistry of Gladys Knight, Patti LaBelle, Mary J. Blige, Cheryl Crow, and Gwen Stefani, just to name a few. Also, it's Marilyn's creativity, leadership, and commitment to relationship building that have resulted in establishing partnerships between the music industry and the sports industry as you know it today. She's brokered marketing partnerships with BMW, Coca-Cola, Ford, Nike, McDonald's, and the list goes on. And I'd be hard pressed not to mention that it is her tenacity for building relationships that resulted in the multi billion dollar venture Beats by Dre. Currently, she's serving as Senior Vice President of Marketing and Brand Partnerships for Patti LaBelle's GPE Records. And she's a voting member of the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences, also known as the Grammys. Now, in addition to all of this, Marilyn is also an ordained Methodist pastor, and she has committed all of her spare time to living a life of service as a chaplain at St. John's Medical Center, a mentor to Los Angeles's inner city youth, and she serves on the board of Go Haiti, a nonprofit orphanage that she visits every Christmas. That is Marilyn Batchelor in a nutshell. Marilyn, this is a conversation I have been so excited to have. And of course, I'm excited every time that we talk. I find everything you do to be so inspiring and amazing. And of course, I feel like we're kindred spirits, right? Because we both have such passion for music. Um, I'm always talking about like, that's where it is for me. And I'm wondering like, if we could start off the conversation, talking a little bit about how did you end up in LA in the music industry as this top executive? Well, you know, I I
1: started out when I graduated from undergrad at Syri- from Syracuse University, I actually had a job out in Los Angeles, in Southern California in journalism because that was my undergrad degree. So I moved to Southern California for a job at the Orange County Register as a reporter. And I often share with people that I was so excited that the Register was above a mid-sized paper because it competed with the LA Times and here I am straight out of college. So this is a big deal. And I enjoyed writing. I always loved writing. I enjoyed reporting. I did not enjoy being in an environment that felt somewhat oppressive. And that also was because the time that I was in Orange County, which was the late 80s, early 90s, there wasn't a big shift. There's a, a little bit more of a shift now because you've got more of a liberal crowd there. But Orange County, you know, the joke out here used to be that if you were in Orange County, you were behind the orange curtain. That was the expression. I didn't understand what that meant then, but I do now. It was really challenging. I think if I had not gone to the Orange County Register straight from school, I probably would. I don't know if I'd still be in journalism, but I think I would have lasted in a more traditional space a little bit longer. The Register burned me out in a short window. Four and a half years later, I was done I wanted to to do journalism. I wanted to continue writing, but I did not want to be there. And honestly, by the time I left, it was kind of a mutual thing because my editor and I just did not see things the right way. And I wrote a story that we didn't agree on how it should be run. Should it have run in advance or not? And as a result, basically, they were like, okay, well, you can go. (laughs) So kind of got fired. So,
0: (laughs) so I I think they regret that now. I bet they're like, man i
1: know,
0: like, what happened to her? Oh, wow, isn't that her her now? Yeah, I left and I I thought I would stick
1: it out for another year um, or try journalism for another year. And I moved to Tennessee for like this one publication. I lasted about less than a year and I, I moved back to LA. But my desire then was, my passion's always been music. I grew up in Detroit. I have family and friends who recorded for Motown. A lot of those people were friends of some of my My parents and my uncle, my uncle's friends with the dramatics. My parents went to high school with like Smokey Robinson and the guys in Temptations and a lot of those people. So it was very, very familial to me to be in that space. My aunt lived at the corner of Kipling and West Grand Boulevard. You could stand on her porch and look at Motown. It all felt sort of like serendipitous for me to find my way into the music space. I decided that I was going to go into entertainment law. I told my parents that was what I wanted to do. And they were like, oh, that's a great idea. They supported it. And after about a year and a half, I said, ah, I don't know if I want to do that. Well, I'll tell you what kind of made me think better of it. One, the idea of going into entertainment law was because I enjoyed music. I didn't know about the other positions in entertainment. So it just it was just a traditional space. When I But I got a job working at Virgin Records. And once I got inside and was reporting to the Senior Vice President of Black, well, the General Manager of Black Music, Senior Vice President at Virgin Records a Black woman named Sharon Hayward. And from that job, I learned all these other opportunities that were available in the space. And that made me look at like, wait a minute, I don't have to just do law. I could do marketing. I could look at project management. I could look at publicity. I could look at ANR, artists and repertoire, so many other areas that I was like, wow, I didn't even know these existed until I started working inside of a record company. So that was when I went back to my parents and was like, you know what? I think I want to do something else. I think I want to work in music, in entertainment, but not in law. And, and actually, the way I got the job at Virgin Records is there was a magazine, there was, a, my friends laugh about it to this day, there was an issue in Ebony Magazine, I think it was Ebony, I'm pretty sure, that highlighted the top 50 music executives. And Ebony's a black magazine, so they're gonna all be black executives in the music industry. I wrote all 50. I submitted a letter, I submitted a resume, I submitted samples of my writing clips, this whole packet, and I I mailed it out to 50 people. And of those 50, I heard back from, I think I heard back from three, but I heard directly from two. One woman's name was Orneta Barber, who was the vice president at Warner Electric Atlantic, which was a distribution arm for their music. The other was from Virgin Records. And it was actually not Sharon, but another woman, Jimma Corfield, who was AR. Anyway, Orneta and Sharon were friends. And Orneta said, Well, we don't have a job, but I really, really like your packet. I I appreciate you writing to me. And but I think you should meet my friend Sharon. I interviewed for um, another position because Gemma reached out. I interviewed with Gemma's office because she was looking for an assistant. Gemma said, if you don't get hired in my department, I think you should meet Sharon. So here's Sharon coming up again. So I go across the street. I meet this tall woman who had a very like no-nonsense kind of look on her face, had kind of a funky, cool vibe, had like, you know, one like, dangling earring and another little funky cool one on the other side had a couple more earrings going up the side and I was like oh wow she's totally in the street i show up in a double breasted suit with a trench <laughs> coat on my arm carrying a briefcase like i'm going to apply for an insurance agent job she looked me up and down was like i don't know where you're going but you can't work here so <laughs> we talked she looked at me and she was like mm. She said, OK, well, you know, you go take the tests, And there were these tests that you had to take. Like one was, the, you know, the most commonly misspelled words. They even had me take a typing test and some others, a math test and a bunch of other tests. And I was like, oh, brother. So, you know, I've just come out of like working as an editor. So I'm sharp on these things. So I sit down. They're like, OK, you've got an hour to do take take all these tests. And you give them back to us when you're done. So I sit down, I take the test. 15 minutes later, I get up and I say, I'm done. And they're looking at me like, what? I was like thinking like, you can't be serious. You can't really, this, this. what are these tests? So Sharon says, thanks for coming in. I don't hear from her for a while. Grammys come, they win a lot of awards. It's Soul to Soul, Paul Abdul, After Seven, Lenny Kravitz. All these artists are on Virgin. Sharon's breaking records left and right. And I sent her a note. Congratulations! If you have hired someone, I would just like to be continue to be considered for anything else. And she says, "I haven't hired anyone. No one can pass these tests. The same test that <laughs> I took in fifteen minutes. No one could pass this test." I was like, "God, be kidding!" So I go meet with her again, and apparently she'd gone through quite a few assistants because Sharon was very demanding. And she said well, I have a job for you. If you are willing and interested in learning, do you want to learn? And I said, absolutely. She said, good, because I want to teach. And she hired me. And then she looked at me and she said, and don't wear that suit back in here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I just have to say, like that story is really amazing. I mean, and it's such a demonstration of your tenacity and your spirit and a great example of how, if you really want something, you have to go after it, right? You have to go after it. And I understand that Sharon became like a great mentor to you and is, you know, really helped you to work your way through the industry. She has. And we still talk once every couple of weeks
1: and we play words with friends every night. Really? Really? We do. So when I play a work that's like 75 points, she calls and curses me out.
0: (laughs) So I have to ask you, like, what are some of the greatest mentorship moments that you had with Sharon that helped you to really excel? You know, working for Sharon was like
1: (laughs) working for Mr. Miyagi. (laughs) (laughs) There were things she would tell me to do. I had no understanding of why I was doing them. I was like, what? She's like, she would say things like, read all my mail. Okay. I read the mail, put it in order. I had come up with this, this filing order for her where each folder was labeled what was urgent, what needed to be read right now, what could be read later, what needed to be signed, what came from different departments, what came from this. And so I had them all broken down and it was all in one big folder. So each one was had a, its own tab. And she could go in and she could read whatever she she could go through, whatever she wanted to go through in those particular photos And she would just bring them back empty and put them on my desk. So we had a system. Then she would say she's like, you know, I'm not into I'm a woman. I don't believe in having my assistant go and like get coffee, um, get my do my get my dry cleaning. She's like, that's no, we're not doing that. She's like, we are going to make sure you learn. So she would say, I also want you to read all the the magazines that come come into my office, which I mean, everything came to me anyway. And so I was like, okay. And then she'd say, you know, I need you to make sure you stay on top of my calendar. And she would give me her schedule every month of everybody's birthdays. And she'd say, make sure. So my responsibility with the birthdays was to make sure that I ordered flowers for every single person on the list. She sent out at least 10 floral arrangements every month. She would write a note some people I'd say do you want the note or do I write the note and I would write the note in her voice and then she would look at it and she would tweak it and give it back to me it was funny when I first started working for her I was like so timid because she was so like she felt she felt domineering in so many ways I mean she was I'm five three Sharon's almost six feet tall and she had very strong presence so I was like oh my goodness and I'd never really been an assistant before I, I was a newspaper reporter so I'm like what I know I did answer a phone, but there were just um, things that I didn't realize went into being her assistant. I mean, you can be other people's assistant probably and get away with a lot of that stuff, but not with her. So it would be like, OK, you don't have to get coffee, but I need you to keep my refrigerator full of, of water and full of drinks. OK, make sure my phone, all my speed dial numbers are up to date. OK. Didn't understand what all that stuff meant. Then, of course, over time and then she would go into the mail. I would have to go in the mail room. I have to send out packages if it was a lot, she would come and sit on the floor with me. It would be three or four of us, and she would be sitting right down there with us, helping us get them done. And I realized, I'm like, wow, you know, this is um interesting. This is what being a, a good boss is. But I realized she was always trying to help someone. I mean, we'll get some calls from some people. I'm like, Sharon, why on earth is this person calling you? Because she'd given them her number. And then if it was after a certain hour of the day, she'd answer the phone, which was how I figured how to get in touch with her myself when I first started connecting is that, like, oh, she has the phone after five. Good to know. So it was like all these things that she would do. And little by little, I realized a large part of that was reading her mail kept me abreast of what was going on in the department. So someone called and said they had mailed something. They called about something. She needed had a question about something. I could say, oh, yeah. They reached out to you a week ago, and this is what it was. If reading the magazines meant that I knew what was going on, not only at Virgin Records, but other record labels. So I understood what our competitors were doing, who was putting out what releases, what was what was hot, what was not, what was falling off the chart, what was climbing the chart. So I was learning that. Um, lear- doing things like putting her calls on speed dial also made the office more efficient, because then she didn't have to have me get anybody on the phone. She could just push the button, she could deal with it herself. And a lot and she preferred that. Sometimes she would say, get me so-and-so if she was she was making calls at the same time. So all those things were like, I'm learning without realizing how much I'm learning. So it was just really pretty, pretty amazing working for her. So when I left Virgin Records as an executive assistant, because of everything I learned from Sharon, my next job was at MC Records as director of marketing. Wow.
0: That's a
1: huge leap. Huge leap. Huge. I skipped coordinator. I skipped manager. <laughs> I skipped all the to director and was on from there.
0: So did you feel like you had a big learning curve jumping into this position as a director of marketing? I did. I also think that the, a large part of that was
1: because I was working under someone who had no problem getting her hands dirty. So even though I had an assistant. I would see other assistants in the mail room sometimes and they'd look at me and they go, What are you doing in here? They're like, My boss doesn't even know where the mail room is. I'm like when well, my assistant is doing my expenses. So while she's doing the expenses, or he's doing my expenses, I'm going to send out this package. So they were like, wow. And then also uh, there was another woman who was a mentor, Terry Williams, who's a publicist. She was a publicist for like Michael Jackson and Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis and Essence Magazine and a lot of people over the years. And Terry always talked about, she actually wrote this book called The Personal Touch. And the whole focus was how to maintain your best relationships with people is to one, still send them a personal note. Don't just send things in email. And the other part of it was making sure that you knew people's names and you were genuine, you know, not just like, shooting breeze just to be doing it and then like not really care or saying hi how you doing and walking away at the same time like which says you really don't care that was another part of like learning and i learned that from sharon like sharon would sharon would like it could be the the security guard and you know you find out like they're like hi sharon how you doing and you find out later well the reason they know sharon's name is because one day sharon saw them waiting for the bus and picked them up and gave them a ride home or one day, Sharon sent somebody lunch because they just looked like they could use a nice lunch that day. I mean, she would just do things like that, you know, and you wouldn't know it, and you find out later because that person told you. But she would never tell you what she was, what she did, and she always looked out for her team that way. I mean, like she would go away, and she knew that I liked. I used to love these Andy's chocolate mints. Oh, yes, she, that's good. She, awesome. she would, she would come, she would walk in the office. And, like, you know, to not come off too soft, because she's a tough lady, she would throw two or three boxes of those things on my desk and go, here. (laughs) (laughs) Or come back from a trip and saw some bag that she thought was really cute and said, here. (laughs) Just throw it on the desk.
0: (laughs) Thanks, Sharon. That is like, I think such a critical part of leadership is showing care and compassion for the people that we work with, that we collaborate with, that we lead, that we know who they are, that we know about their lives, that we recognize them as having lives outside of work. And and that motivates people, right? That makes them want to engage and want to work for you, want to work with you. And those are such important things to learn. I mean, I, I I could see why she was such a wonderful mentor to you mm-hmm. and why you made such an incredible leap from yeah. one position to the next.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Reading her mail and asking her questions. I mean, as an assistant, there was an event in San Francisco. She had agreed to judge this talent competition, but she was like, I can't do that. I've got way too many other things to do to go judge a talent company. I've got, you know, I've got budgets. I've got, I'm running an department. And so she sent me Wow! like air hotel, all of it covered. I was like, Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, she would just do things like that. And then I, I know, forget one of my birthdays, she surprised me and took me to dinner. And when I got there, she had invited the entire department.
0: Oh, And bought so-
1: dinner for everyone. Took me, bought me two pairs of shoes before we got to dinner. And then she gave me a card and she said, um, open the card when you get home. I said, okay. Open the card when I got home and eight one hundred dollar bills fell out. Oh, wow. Yeah. So she would do things like that all the time. Can I get a job with Sharon? <laughs> <laughs> she's still <laughs> the fire now, but yeah, but she still got the same heart. <laughs>
0: that is that is amazing.
1: Yeah.
0: So like I have to ask you as a marketing executive like your talent is impeccable. Like I know that you are sought after. You have come up with some of the most brilliant deals and plans in your work with, you know, establishing a relationship between like the sports industry and music, right? Yes. Like where did you learn this? There are things that we learn and there are things that we are just it's our thing. We're good at it, right? It's yes. our niche. And so how did you find yourself developing these big deals and making all of this headway and really changing the way that we experience music in the world? Yeah. The
1: interesting part of it is that we did not have a strategic marketing department at MCA. Actually, there wasn't one at any label. They had come up with the name, but they weren't quite sure what it was supposed to look, how it was supposed to look. First, we had a woman hired who was basically doing a lot of research on the internet and how, you know, the internet was going to work and things because the internet was internet was new. Then the second person came in and he kind of was a little bit closer in doing, looking at advertising, but it was more strategizing how to buy advertising, not partnering with advertising agencies. During the time, then they brought in a third person who was kind of trying to figure it out as well. And she knew she had had a better niche for rock music but we didn't have that many successful rock bands I mean we had live we had um, sublime blink 182 and meatloaf and then we had some other groups that were you know had a big hit but weren't huge rec artists as a whole so there wasn't a lot that she was going to really be able to develop and so I had My artists, which were, you know, I had like Patti LaBelle, Gladys Knight, then I worked on some of Silas records, which was a gentleman named Louis Silas, who passed away several years ago. He was brilliant, um, A&R producer, remixer, he was really talented. So he had a label. So I worked on some of his artists, Um, one guy, Jesse Powell, who actually had a a big record. And then I also worked on a co-marketed with a a team on Rhythm Country and Blues, which was a big hit, and some of B.B. King's stuff. So... And then I had some new acts who ended up uh, being developed a group called immature that we changed their names to IMX when they got a little bit older, but immature people know immature. And one of the kids from there is an, it was an actor on some of the sitcoms. Then I had a very young five-year-old Raven Simone, who, oh. uh, who of course to this day is always like, oh, going to be my baby because she was a kid. And we put her out at seven, she was seven years old. So we had her and then we had, um, other artists who became known in other spaces had a young lady named, um, gosh, last name was Sullivan. Yeah. I think it was Yamin Sullivan, something like that, but, and she is now on Broadway. So we had several who kind of ventured out from where they initially started, but the bigger part of it was that I was doing these, like finding these partnerships with brands because, and the main reason for that was because the one department that never had any money was marketing. I would be given a budget. It could be a budget of like $2, 3000000 million, but I had to take that money and basically sign off on it to every other department. Promotion needed money for radio. Publicity needed money to do television and do a publicity photo shoot and anything else TV related or print related. Sales needed money for uh, to work with distribution and to get the product in the stores and to get a position up front. So you had all these departments that needed money And then you spend money on the photo shoot and the video shoot. But after after I finished allocating all these dollars, there was nothing for marketing. So the only thing I could do was I was like, you know what, then? I'm going to figure out how to spend other people's money. So I started looking at brands. And then the first thing was, how do I partner? Well, the first question I'd ask myself is if this artist was a product, what would it be? Would it be a Cadillac? Would the artist be dial soap? Would the artist be a beauty product? What would this artist be based on how you would identify? And that's how I began to go after product lines. And then I would go to all these different marketing conferences and meet people there who were like executives at the brands and meet people at the agencies and establish these relationships, meet people at the NBA from the NBA or the NFL or the NHL or NASCAR and establish those relationships. And so we talk. And then when I get back back to my office, I go through all my cards and I start to think about who is going to make sense for what. And that's where the relationships would begin. And then, then I think the thing that carried it out was that I always made good on what I said I was going to do. I, I did not call brands in the last minute saying I needed to work, with, needed them to partner with me and basically shell out money on something that was going to happen in two weeks which is ridiculous, but labels use people and labels used to do that because brands would complain that labels didn't understand the calendar and that their budgets are being put together like, you know, a year in advance. So don't come to them asking for some, I mean, they would love to put it in their budgets, love to do it, but not something they can do in two weeks. It's just not realistic. And they can't, I mean, that case is just as hard to get $500 approved as it is to get 500,000 because it's still not in the budget. So I understood that. I also took marketing classes, um, like marketing plan development classes, because I was like, "I my plans need to look like a marketing plan, not like something that was just thrown together from a record label perspective. So I, so I did that while I was at Virgin Records, actually. I took a marketing plan development class. And then I also started looking at other people's plans. I became friends with a woman at MCA Nashville who wrote fantastic plans and i asked her i said you know is it okay if you send me a couple of yours i'd love to look at how you're doing your plans and look at how i can um you know learn from them because it was still relatively new for me and so she did that and then um and that you know so and i just continued to like take classes and look at things online and look at how brands were doing things and talking to folks and establishing these relationships and little by little like immature was had a mcdonald's endorsement and Patty LaBelle was already, had done a, a McDonald's. So then we were marketing her cookbooks and we were doing campaigns with, she had a TV show at the time. So we're doing cross promotions with them, tying in with clothing lines and cars and just sort of, you name it. I was doing partnerships with them. And then it became a point if an artist was over budget marketing wise, but they wanted to shoot a certain video and the video was going to go over by let's say $25,000, they would come to me and say, hey Marilyn, we really wanna shoot this video. We, we only, we're we short 25,000, can you help us? And I would ask what products can we put in the video? And if it was a cell phone, if it was a car, if it was, could it, it I with Shaggy, I think I did Mike's Hard Lemonade. I mean, it could be anything. And I'd say, okay, well, let me go back to them. We have to give them so many seconds on screen the artist has to hold the product or be driving the car or hold the phone and it needs to be able to give us a zoom in, give us a money shot where people can see exactly what that product is and I'll get your money. And that's, I mean, everything from watches to you name it. And I would go back to the brands and they sign off, we sign off and we shoot it. They were happy with it, and here's your check for 20, 25. 100. We've even had brands, uh, been enough to sponsor the entire video. Mary J. Blige, we did one where we used the same director that shot the video to shoot the Reebok commercial so that it was look, it looked like an extension of the video in the commercial, and then of course, she was wearing it. They cropped these pants that were not for sale, people started calling asking how they could buy the exact outfit that Mary was wearing. And then for General Motors, for instance, I had Mary, um, General Motors sponsored the dropping of the ball on New Year's Eve. Mary did that. I got General Motors to pay for it. And six months later, Mary had a General Motors car deal. So that's, you know, just a skimming the surface of how a lot of this stuff was was done.
0: So much of what you said here, I feel like I need to go back and and kind of comment on and, and acknowledge is that, first of all, relationship building is critical and has to be genuine. And I think one of the things a lot of us struggle with is with networking and connecting with people that we don't want to feel like our relationships are transactional. And it's not that they're transactional, it's that they, they're they supportive of one another, right? I'm right. going to help you, you're going to help me, we're going to do this together and great things are going to come of it and we we have a good relationship, right? It's like, uh, it's, it's not a transactional thing. It's a mutually beneficial relationship that is founded on respect and appreciating yeah. each other. And I think a lot of us need to learn like how to really cultivate those kinds of relationships. Yeah. Uh, And also your creativity, though, because these things were not happening before you. This was like your brainchild and it just changed everything. Yeah. Uh, Advertising as we know it again like the sports industry and the ways that we see music engaged in ads the ways we see products in in music and like you're saying about Mary J Blige and people wanting her outfit like like you crafted this you, yeah. you know which is so unbelievable i shouldn't yeah. say unbelievable it's just outstanding and a demonstration of what we can do with our creativity when we're bold when we're courageous and when we believe in ourselves. Right. Well, absolutely.
1: I mean, there were people doing like, like I said, Patty LaBelle had a deal with McDonald's for Big Mac, I think it was. And that was before I got to the company. So there were like the, a lot of people doing like these individual one-offs. You know, there was always somebody singing a jingle. I mean, I think Phoebe Snow was infamous for the coffee commercials. People recognized and Patty Austin, same thing. But there was not... A department within a label that actually said, these are the things we're, these are the things we're gonna focus on. We're gonna be the department that generates money. While everybody else is spending money to break the artist, this will be the one department that doesn't spend money. And that was always the thing. I always would tell people that's like my department spends no money. My department brings in money. That's all we do. We, we don't spend a dime. And our CFO who we jokingly used to call CF no, because he was that's what he said. <laughs> he loved me because he would say, you know, you're the reason why we made our fourth quarter or you're the reason why we made our third quarter because of those checks that were coming in. And I would always make sure that every department was, was sort of um, reflected in it. Like what we were doing on the label side, I would make sure that there was something that also tied into what we called our special markets department. So if the artist had an endorsement deal, then we had a commercial. With the commercial, we ha- I had them license the music, which meant that that was also another element of revenue. And then uh, when we were having, doing physical product, then I would have them buy so many CDs or pay to put an insert. Like a uh, Reebok paid for, I think it was a million inserts in a Mary J. Blige CD you know, or also at Seagram's Gin actually sponsored Mary's tour one year and had every other label calling me trying to get their artist on as the opening act. <laughs> and then there's, so there was constantly, you know, something. I want artist We couldn't get a lot of money uh, for her because she was brand new, but she had a song called Blue Jeans. So Tommy Hilfiger designed all these jeans for her. And so she went out on the road she performed in you know, custom design, figure denim from coast to coast. And then we had a contest at the radio stations where people could win a pair. And with that, you know, so so even though we weren't, she wasn't getting money for it. And being able to give away a pair of jeans at each radio station that participated, she got airplay that we didn't have to pay extra for, you know, in terms of like paying for extra promotions because the stations wanted it. So there's always a way to figure out how to, Maximize that, and either bring in revenue, or save ourselves money. On the other end,
0: I'm learning from you as we're we're having this conversation, and I'm thinking, okay, I need to like you know consult with Marilyn on some ideas here. But I think like some of the things that I I need to highlight here that are so critical is that oftentimes we find ourselves in our position, and we do the job. Mm-hmm you allocate the budget, the budget's gone. Sorry, it is the way it is. You're a visionary. You said like, we're not just going to follow the rules. We're not just going to manage things and that's it. How do we grow? How do we evolve? How do we say like, we don't spend money, we make money? Um, That takes real vision um, and creativity. And again, like, like just boldness, just boldness. So how did you find like the, 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 the strength, the courage, the, the faith in yourself to say, I know I can do this and I'm going to do it. And that's it. I think there were, well, for one,
1: I had a lot of support growing up, but my number one supporter was my grandmother, my mother's mother, Mama Bert. Mama Bert was blind and taught me how to read and write. Tell time, how to count money, how to travel on the bus, how to pay bills, how to write out money orders, all this stuff. And she would always say, when I'd say, Well, do you think I can do this? She's like, Of course you can. So it always became like a why not? You know, what makes you think you can do it? What makes you think I can't? And so I never took no for an answer. And then because I had decided that I wasn't going to work full time in journalism, at least not at that point. I mean, I I knew I figured writing would become a part of my life somewhere along the way. So I knew that my skill set in writing would be important. Uh, But I didn't think I would go back into working at a media company. So in my head, it was like, this has to work because I don't know what else I'm going to do. So it kind of became like live or die mentality. Like you're going to do this because if you don't do it, you're gonna have to go back to school and find something else to do. I hadn't even thought about what others, what other jobs were out there. All I knew was that this was something I loved to do. It was a lot of pressure, and our marketing meetings was very stressful because if you went in there and your project wasn't doing well, then it's almost like, you know, you might as well go sit in the corner with a dunce cap on. Wow. Our budget meetings were stressful because if somebody else overspent and there was a negative on your artist line, even though you didn't do it, you still had to explain it. So it was, that stuff was stressful. So, and I was always stressed out right before my artist records came out because I was like, oh Lord, please let this thing do well. And you just weren't sure. So I spent all my time working the building. You know, I would be working promotion. How are we doing the radio? working sales, how we looking on our orders, working international, do you think of any territory that wants my artist, working publicity, can we get him or on this show? And that was like an all-day process. And in between that, I'd be calling brands, calling agencies, calling my friends at other labels, trying to find out what they are doing to see if, if there's something I might be missing. And then, of course, talking to the managers all day long. Because when they realized that I would work all day and all night, I had managers who would call the office at 11 o'clock at night because they knew I was there. Wow. So, so that was, um, it was a lot. And then, um, I remember for a while I traveled so much trying to just like go to agencies and meet with brands. And a lot of it was like FaceTime, you know, we didn't have zoom. Um, so it was really like, if you want to make it happen, you're going to need to see this person. And that was, it meant jumping on a plane. And that was, I mean, I remember one time I had been traveling so long that I woke up and didn't know what city I was in. And I was like, oh no, I'm, lo- I'm losing my mind. It's time to go home. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love that when you're talking about, you know, the internet was new, but I'm like, man, I remember those days. Like we're showing uh, our age because uh, the students I work with today, they're like, what? No Right. One. Right. Like, right you know it's like What's a library card catalog <laughs> i mean
1: think about it when president obama was elected he had a blackberry they're like that's oh, right <laughs> what is a blackberry and flip phones are back so you know <laughs> hey i don't think blackberries are coming back though. <laughs> i don't
0: think so i don't think so I think oh my definitely. gosh so i have to ask like you're now working with patty labelle's record company GPE records, right? I know you're working on really exciting things. What are your big projects right now? What are you really motivated by?
1: I am motivated by telling her life story. So we're trying to get that moving. It doesn't I mean we've gotten some people who are interested in it. I would really like to see her get a really big look because I think that she deserves it. I think she needs to be with a company that's going to just back it and. Um, so, want to do a film, her her life story in film, uh, a biopic as well as a documentary. Oh wow! And those are those are two priorities for me. She's put out a jazz album because she always wanted to put out one, and it didn't. It did okay. You know, I mean, jazz. You know, you could sell five thousand records, and they say, "Oh, that was good." As long as you don't overspend, so it did okay. Then she had another artist on her label who was who was also produced on her projects. Jamar Jones, and I think his project is going to come back full circle, because it's called A Fatherless Child, and it talks about how he and the piano became friends when his father died when he was five, from, I think his father had some kind, he was, he was sick, he had some kind, he may have cancer, I forgot what he had, but um, he grew up in like the whole two-parent household, you know, siblings, white picket fence kind of thing, and then his father died and just shook up the whole household, and his mother bought a piano and didn't know how to talk to her kids and hope the piano might help. And as Jamar explains, the piano became his friend. So this project is pretty amazing because I've looked at, you know, projects that mentor boys or what's it like for young girls or young boys to grow without their fathers. And the music really is, it's very like, I'd say it's cathartic in some ways, in addition to being a very meditational piece and it's just beautifully done. And he's got like guest vocals on there from Patty's on there, Vivian Green, another um like Neil Soul artist, another guy. Um, what is Elgin's last name? I've forgotten. But there, he's basically he's got some good stuff on there, and he's incredible classical pianist. And he was also Jill Scott's music director. And he plays on, he was on the soundtrack for La La Land that was nominated oh. for the Oscar. Yeah. So he's extremely talented. So I think his project is going to come full circle. I think as things begin to evolve and, you know, you look at things like even with the George Floyd campaign and all that, like these, all these men who now have their children are going to grow up without their fathers, that I think this project will, will fall into place at some point.
0: That's really amazing. So uh, I know you just worked on, well, fairly recently an amazing project where you created an exhibit connecting music and the civil rights movement, and that was displayed at an annual national conference, the conference you and I attend for ARSBL. And I know there's some talk about it traveling, uh, which I'm excited about. And um, another just nod to your incredible creativity and how you developed this and made these connections which of course is connected, and I need to acknowledge it's connected to your doctoral work because in addition to all of the amazing things that you're doing, you're you're finishing up your PhD right now and and you're a Methodist pastor out really working in the community and serving the people. I know you work with the youth in LA that you're, you're on the board for Go Haiti and you, you go to Haiti every Christmas to visit this orphanage and you're a chaplain that, uh, you know, at a local hospital in LA meeting with people. So like, I look at you and I'm just wowed by all that you do your genuineness, your, your passion for what you do and the way that you bring it all together to be Marilyn, to be who you are. Like, this is who you are. You have all these, the uh, things you do that create your, your identity. So, you know, you're doing all of this amazing stuff. And that really wasn't a question. I just wanted to acknowledge all of that, but I'd love if you if you want to talk a little bit about your exhibit and and the inspiration you have found in Polly Murray, who I know you're you're you've been researching and writing about and the inspiration she's brought you.
1: Yeah, well, the exhibit was through American Academy of Religion and Society of Biblical Literature. It was a wonderful avenue to travel down to expose this my passion is black history african American studies as well as women and gender studies so all of the that kind of all comes together and of course we know you know on the top of it is this music the arts i love music i love film i love plays um, i just love art i was looking at growing up as a kid in the late 60s there's the riots the riots in detroit riots in um, philadelphia dc a large part of that, some was just prior to the assassination of uh, Martin Luther King, and some came right after. It was like just the impetus for going even further, because there was a lot, of, a lot of things happening. There was um, the thing, same thing we're talking about now with police-involved shootings uh, was happening then. People were just being abused just because. In Detroit, they called these cars the Black Mariahs. There was big cars, sedans that these police officers would drive for in a car. And just happened to see like black youth on the street and just get out of the car and start roughing them up. And then you had the issue of like, of course, you had the southern migration where a lot of people moved from the south up north because the automobile industry was, was starting to boom. Um, Henry Ford was offering five dollars an hour. In fact, how many not know if it was five dollars an hour? It might have been five dollars a day, come to think of it. But whatever he was offering, it was more than what they were getting down south. So a lot of people migrated north. Some went to Detroit for the automobile industry. Some went to Chicago, some went to Ohio. And each one was there because of whatever was happening at the time. You know, some were working on the railroad. Anyway, all these people move up here, but now there's no housing because there's redlining where um, blacks can only live on a certain part in a certain part of town. You couldn't buy if you wanted to buy in a certain neighborhood. They wouldn't sell to you. People were buying houses by having like a white friend show up as if they were them. It was just all just totally not right. And the issues were resulted in protests. People had had enough. People had had enough of being mistreated, had enough of not being able to get get paid fair wages, not being able to find a place to live or more people living in one, one house or one apartment or even one room than they should. I think my mom was telling me that when. When they moved to Detroit from Florida, my mother was my mother was born in Florida, but she never lived there. But my grandmother and my grandfather moved to Florida and I think they rented a room. And then as my uncle and my mother were born, I think it was my, my grandfather, my grandmother, my uncle, my mother in this room on what's called Detroit's North End side. And that area, of course, now, you know, the price of everything has just skyrocketed. You know, you've got gentrification is just taking over and everything, all the prices have gone up. But that area, those were neighbor, neighbor, neighborhoods that no one wanted to live in them. All these cities, even in the black neighborhoods, which is kind of where I also pick up some of my internal philosophy, even in neighborhoods that were considered undesirable, black folks had their own drugstores, somehow managed to, even in the midst of all the oppression, have their own black doctors. There was a black hospital several black hospitals in that neighborhood, nightclubs, stores, everything. So they didn't have to leave. They didn't have to go to the side of town that didn't want them. But then in all these cities, a freeway went through them. A freeway went through Detroit, where the Chrysler freeway is, was once Black Bottom. A freeway went through Chicago. One went through Philadelphia. One went through uh, Newark, New Jersey. One went through Watts. So people were frustrated. It's like now, you now not only are we displaced, but you have now run basically steamrolled our neighborhood. Where are we going? So people. So the protest. So I I named my my um exhibit, protest in word and music. I looked at the fiftieth anniversary of Motown's um, had a label called Black Forum, that basically included spoken word and some and music. The only music piece was Elaine Brown, who was the only female head of the Black Panther Party. The rest was spoken word. So I, and had Martin Luther King speeches on it. So they put that out 50 years ago. Alongside that was the 55th anniversary of one of the first black publishing houses, Broadside Press, which was founded by Dudley Randall, also out of Detroit. So I took the two and I caught a protest and word and music and I put up Motown's Black Forum and then I rolled it into Broadside Press and looked at the various um, poets and writers that came out of Broadside Press, which included like a young Nikki Giovanni, a young Sonia Sanchez. Gwendolyn Brooks gave him permission to put out a couple of her pieces. It was Don L. Lee, who later became Haki Lee Leroy Jones, who later became Mary Baraka. So all these uh, projects came out. So I did it and I put it up. I was supposed to present it but because of, pen, the pen, uh, because of COVID, got an idea to make it a 3D project and put it up on screen so you can look at it on your computer. And it would basically look as if the wall, as if you were in a museum and the walls move. So basically it basically took you on a tour. And that was the first one. And, of course, now I've got an interest in that going out on the road. And I'm preparing for another project now that's actually going to be done in both 3D and augmented reality.
0: That's amazing. Amazing. And I know that you're like your exhibit has touched so many people as disappointing as it is to not have had the opportunity to see you present this in person with it being virtual. I mean, it has reached so many people and has made such an impact and has told such an important story, which I think is just really beautiful in so many ways. And again, your creativity and the way that you just put it to work and continually, I don't want like say, take initiative, but take initiative, I guess. Right. Like, you're just like, I'm just going to do this. I'm yeah. going to do this. Why not? Not yeah. why not? I'd love that. Why not? Not why, why not? Why can't you? Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly.
1: yeah. I mean, my grandmother, could could do and teach me what she did, and she was blind. I felt like I had no
0: excuse. Yeah, yeah, that's. I mean, that's amazing. So I need to ask you this, and and this will be my last question. This has been such a great conversation, and I feel like we're going to have to have another conversation because people are going to be like, "Oh my gosh, we need to hear more from Marilyn," and all of your your amazing practices. But okay, I've got to ask, who is your favorite artist you've worked with? I just I have to know. Oh my goodness. Are you not allowed to say this? Like
1: I don't know. I mean, I have to say I have favorite artists for so many different things. I have Patty LaBelle is one of my favorites because she's one of my favorite people. There's an artist a lot of people don't know, but then a lot of people do because he has a cult following named Rasan Patterson. I love him. I we always said if Stevie Wonder and Shaka Khan had a child, it will be Rasan. <laughs> so there's him. His vocals, his writing skills are incredible. Gladys Knight can sing the phone book for me. I mean, yeah. she's just, her voice is just ugh, that contralto, silky smooth, ugh, all day long. There'll never be another Luther. Love me some Luther Vandross. There'll be another Whitney Houston. So there are those people you know that I love. But also, I mean, I love Patty Austin. Every, every, I love so many different artists for so many different reasons. And it's that. And then I have my favorites on the, you know, on the gospel space. I mean, I love Kurt Carr. I think he's incredibly talented. And then there's like, you know, some of the old school ones that my grandmother loved Shirley Caesar. So whenever I play Shirley Caesar, I always think of my grandmother. There's so many for so many reasons. I don't think I have one. In fact, I know I don't. There's not one. I love Yolanda Adams. I think her range is incredible. You know, and then there's some of the new ones. I actually I like Corinne Hawthorne, who's um, relatively new in comparison to some of the others that we're talking about. Sure.
0: sure. But who is your favorite to work with?
1: Ah, uh, let's see. I guess it would be a cross. Wow. Now that's hard. I think it would be a cross between Patty and Rasan Although I have to say another one that I actually adore is Regina Bill. She's been really, she's a sweetheart too. I mean, you know, I guess that the challenges that I've had, I've had really, really good artists. I've been really blessed to have that, you know, people who love what they did and they were professional, you know, and they got it done. That's what makes it pleasurable. You know, it's the ones who don't show up, the ones who I've got to get out of bed, you know, I got to hire somebody to get them out of bed.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That not so much fun. (laughs) Yeah. I can imagine that you have some very unique challenges Doing the work that you do that a lot of us just cannot even oh, not even imagine no. what it's like, right? We cannot even no. imagine what it's like. No. So yeah. your next move, like I mean, you've had a full career and you're still at it, right? You're still at it, you're yeah. still doing all of this amazing stuff. So yeah. you're gonna finish your PhD, you're mm-hmm. gonna continue being a chaplain and serving your community, you're yeah. gonna make a documentary and a film about Patty LaBelle. And what's your next move? My next
1: move is I want to continue to create art exhibits that are, um, that live in virtual spaces. Yeah. Historically, I want to create more historical art art pieces that live in, in virtual spaces. So it's whether it's like going to Detroit and looking at like some, some spaces that are no longer there that had great meaning. I want to do some things looking at like sacred, black sacred spaces that in black sacred spaces and not just meaning church but places where people congregated. And I'd like to do that in an augmented reality format.
0: So, you know, I'm in Cleveland. And of course, we all love the Mm -hmm. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So
1: shout outs to my girl, Waka.
0: I love it. I love it. So any chance we're going to get you to come to Cleveland, to the Rock Hall, to do an exhibit or to share an exhibit through their site? Waka, I've talked about it.
1: We've talked about it. We'll see what happens.
0: We'll see what happens. I'll be watching for it. Marilyn, you are fabulous. Like you are just fabulous and, and such again, like just such an inspiration. I am such a fan. I am a fan. And I, and I think that's you. mutual. You know, that you're so good. You're so good. I'm so thankful for you making the time for this interview. Cause I know you've had a long day and, uh, oh,
1: but it, it is an honor. You know, I mean,
0: what, one thing we did talk about is that,
1: yeah, I do. I serve as a chaplain in LA at, hospi- at a hospital and I, that is, um, that takes up most of my day. The work I do with Patty or on my dissertation, all that stuff I do in the evening and on the weekend, but I still try to have some time to play and have some fun. You know, I've got um, other things that are special in my life, you know, people and
0: dogs and all that other stuff. I know. I love your dogs. They're adorable. They're adorable. And you you have a full life. So like you, you like are doing chaplaincy most like kind of full time. And yeah. then you're still doing your work with Patty LaBelle and GPE Records in a very prominent position, right? Yeah. Yeah. How do you do this? Like people talk about balance and I say, I like to talk about calibrating because um, I learned that from, from somebody, um, from a good friend. And she said that, she said, you know, it's not about balance. It's life is about calibrating, well, right? And. And, and I believe that. So how do you calibrate it all?
1: I am getting better at balancing it. I when I, just, I put all these timers in my phone, um, including one that tells me when it's time to go to bed. And I look at my health app every day to look at how many steps I'm putting in. And um, now I've joined the fitness program, fitness challenge at the hospital so that we can count our calories you know, where I can find it, I slide it in. So if this is the only way that I'm going to be able to monitor my health is by plugging it into, you know, my phone and all in these apps, then that's what I have to do. In between, I try to find some time to do some other stuff or to see my friends if possible. I mean, we've been on lockdown basically with the quarantine. So it kind of bought me time. <laughs> having to, I don't have to make excuses for not being able to see people because we couldn't go anywhere anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, but now, as we're opening up little by little, we'll, um, you know, I'll find a way to, to build it because I can't just do this all day long. It just won't work. You know, so I I try to find time. And then I, I love, 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 love my family. So, I mean, every morning on my way to work, I call my mother and I and yell at my dad in the background. And I check in with my grandmother, who's 94. I talk to her once a week. And my aunts, you know, I've got a couple aunts who, if I don't call them, they're like, okay, it's been four days. Where you been? My family checks in with me, and then they put me in check when I, when I don't call them back. So I know better than to not. Um, so they keep me grounded as well.
0: Marilyn, thank you so much for this conversation. This has been great. Thank you. Thank you for your time, Gina. For my time. You're hilarious. Thank you for your time in, in, in making time for, in, you know, geez, all the things that you're doing again, I'm such a fan. I'm such a fan and I cannot wait till you come to the rock hall. That's all I'm saying. I can't wait. I'm looking forward to it. and we can go hang out together. I love it. <laughs> Thank you.
1: You're welcome. <laughs>
0: Thanks for listening in today. And to learn more about our guests, visit our website at womenwellnesswork.ursuline.edu. Don't forget to subscribe to Women's Work on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to your podcasts.